for epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities, and all of the fascinating science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, neuropsychiatrist, therapist, neurophysiologist, scientist, or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and some missing brain tissue. I hope to help bridge the unnecessary gap between patients, the public, and the aforementioned. Because epilepsy research and science are cool. Today we should be talking to Dr. Suki Wright, a Wellcome Trust uh, Clinical Research Career Development Fellow at the Institute of Health and Neurodevelopment at Aston University and an honorary paediatric neurologist at Birmingham Women's and Children's Hospital. Suki's particular passion and focus in her work is trying to improve the developmental outcomes of children affected by immune-mediated neurological disease, mostly immune-mediated seizures and epilepsy slash encephalitis. If you're interested in learning more, stay tuned for the chat with Suki. Subscribe and press the bell below to receive notifications of the future interviews we will hold on this channel. I am a paediatric neurologist, so I am a paediatrician and I specialise in looking after children with um, brain uh, diseases and disorders. Um, so I've been doing that for a number of years, um, but at the moment, um, and what I have done over the last well, I think it's five years. Yeah, five years is actually mainly focusing on research now. Uh, so the majority of my time is spent in the lab, uh, running a small small lab, um, and also combining that with about half to one day a week clinical work uh, in the hospital. So my lab research is in Aston University, and my clinical work is at Birmingham Children's Hospital. And very nicely, they're just across the road from each other, so I can just nip across the road um, to both places. So ideally, yeah. So it's very, it's great combination at the moment. What's it like having that combination? So rather than just having one thing to focus on or one role to focus mm-hmm. on, you have to have both. Or do they? Or tell us how they complement each other. I imagine. Yeah, yeah, they absolutely do. I think it's a real privilege to be able to do both. Um, to be able to see um, patients with the diseases that then know that you're going to go back to the lab and and try and not necessarily well try and cure that's obviously the ultimate aim but you know try and understand a bit more about them and then hopefully bring that research back to the patients that you actually see I think it's only when you see the patients that you realize that um, a lot of the problems that they're facing aren't just the acute ones that you see in clinic but as you see them over time you can see that actually there's a there's you know long-term effects of some of these um, disorders that we're researching related to epilepsy um, so so it's great to be able to do both because you know the patients inform the research and then the research hopefully can inform um, the patients and hopefully improve their outcomes which is our goal but yeah so I guess it's fantastic in that sense to be able to do both I think you sometimes feel that um, you're you're a bit torn sometimes because you know because my clinical work is limited you want to be able to do more but you've also got the responsibility to funders and the lab group to obviously be able to do that as well so it's kind of like kind of reminds me of when I first went back to work after having kids you know you felt guilty going to work and then you felt guilty being at home because you were 
not work. So yeah, so yeah, so it's a balancing act, like everything. But yeah, it, at the moment, it's it's really good. This um, disease or disorder, tell us about it. The, the primary one that you're looking into, and how epilepsy is kind of like a symptom of that, or, or yeah. tell yeah, tell us about it a bit more detail if you can. Sure. Um, so I look, uh, I research into autoimmune associated epilepsies, um, and particularly epilepsies that may be a result of um, antibody or autoantibody mediated uh, neurological disease. So antibodies, as I'm sure I'm sure you know, they're kind of our molecular soldiers in our kind of immune army. They sort of fight, protect us um, like from viruses, from bacteria. Um, and most of the time they do their job well in protecting us, but occasionally they get a bit distracted um, and that might be because of a different virus. It might be because of a tumour or something else going on in the body. And instead of therefore kind of protecting us and our vital organs, they start attacking them because they, they get confused and think they're foreign and they need to attack them. So these antibodies are called mm. autoantibodies. And so I'm interested in the diseases when these antibodies target the brain um, and particular brain proteins. Um, and when this happens, we get a condition called autoimmune uh, encephalitis. And one of the main symptoms of that is epilepsy. Uh, patients, children and adults will display changes in behaviour, um, seizures, movements. Um, so it can occur at all ages. And epilepsy is quite one of the uh, common symptoms during the disease. But some patients, when they've recovered from the kind of acute bit, also be left with seizures as well. So it's, it's, that's what I'm looking into. So I'm looking into why these kind of autoantibodies cause seizures and if there's anything we can do to um, just kind of, yeah, try and stop the seizures and maybe then the other symptoms as well. So do we have any idea or any sort of inkling or suspicion of what may cause these um, antibodies to, to poke the nose in, faff about with our brains? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, again, really good question. So interestingly, the probably the first, uh, the, the most common one is called NMDA receptor antibody encephalitis. And this was first mm -hmm. described in actually in young females. And these young females had a tumour called a teratoma, an ovarian teratoma. Now, teratomas are quite unusual tumours in that they're kind of made up of different types of tissue. So they can actually have bits of hair, bits of teeth. And oh, yeah. I've read about these happens. and it looks so weird. You're like literally seeing bits of, yeah, skin, hair, and like a tooth poking out there. And it's like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, so those, but they can also have a bit of neural tissue or kind of brain tissue. So basically, your immune system goes, "What's this?" Um, it's thought one of the one of the hypotheses is that your immune system thinks, "What you know, what on earth is this?" and um, and then starts making antibodies to attack it. And some of those antibodies will actually be directed towards the NMDA receptors in the brain tissue. And if those um, antibodies therefore can get into the bloodstream and into the brain, then they can actually you know, attack your NMDA receptors in your brain, as well as the ones that they're trying to attack in the tumour in the ovary. So that's one of the reasons. Um, yeah. And so I presume, though, this type of, well, I've, I've heard of other forms of encephalitis that men can get, but I guess it wouldn't be an ovary induced or <laughs> a tumour of the ovary. Like, so how would that work? <laughs> So there, there are other tumours that can cause it. Um, so other lymphomas, etc., that have been associated. Um, and quite a lot of the time, we don't actually know why. Um, in children, actually, what we've realised over the last few years is that um, they, children might actually have a 
a viral encephalitis. Um, and again, seizures are a big part of that. So for example, herpes simplex virus encephalitis. And then, yeah, and then they recover from that. So they do okay. And they've had their antivirals. And then they kind of relapse. Um, and they can relapse with abnormal movements or seizures. And you test, their, you test their spinal fluid. There's no evidence of virus. So and what we found is that actually some of those children have actually developed NMDA receptor antibody encephalitis after a viral encephalitis. So the theory there, yeah, so the theory there is that the, the viral encephalitis has kind of exposed some of their brain proteins during when it was active. And again, that has sensitized the immune system to produce the antibodies and then you know, once the poor things, once they've sort of recovered from the viral encephalitis, those antibodies, you know, have multiplied and then cause the kind of NMDA. Yeah. So, so that's another reason. So, yeah, it can be tumours, it can be viruses that trigger this. It, you know, there may even be a genetic susceptibility, and quite a lot of groups are looking into that as well. Um, that you know, you could have a susceptibility to kind of autoimmune disease or or other things that can make you just more at risk of getting these kind of disorders. Yeah, so you're making me think of um, herpes simplex. You're making me think of, well, obviously you just mentioned that. But also I read a, a paper about um, HIV and how that can cause encephalitis as well. Is that right? Yes, that is right. Yeah, absolutely. It can. It can cause encephalitis. Yeah, so a number of different viruses. And actually there's also been a case report of um, patients developing NMDA receptor antibody encephalitis after COVID-19. Um, as well Interesting. Um, but, but very very few very very few it's all about numbers isn't it yeah yeah but viruses are definitely a trigger yeah so how long have you been studying this a long time uh over 10 years I think I think yeah well I think I first saw uh, the first patient I saw was about sort of 10 12 years ago when I started training um that had this encephalitis and I think and then basically I did a so we saw a couple of patients in Birmingham Children's Hospital and then, you know, this wasn't anything like we'd seen before. And I, I think when you're when you're a doctor, you never think that you're going to see a new disease, as it were, because these have only actually been really characterised over the last 10, 15, 20 years. And um, I think there were different names for this disorder. It probably always existed, but nobody knew what the cause was. So now that we've identified the autoantibodies, we know what the cause is. Um, so when these cases started happening, we thought, oh, how many are there in the country? Um, so we organised um, Birmingham Children's Hospital. I know you just started as a registrar and they said, oh, why don't you do a national survey of the UK and find out? So so that's how it started. So we set that up that study, tried to find out how many cases in children in the UK. And then that led me to meet my supervisor in Oxford, Angela Vincent. And then sort of, yeah, then did, the, did more research with her and then carried on from there. So what have you learned like in the past decade? I can't believe I'm saying that decade. It sounds like know, forever, no. but it, must, it just goes so quickly. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. What have I learned about, about this? Yeah. So what have we learned? So I think we've learned a lot about what, how the NMDA receptors in particular, how they cause disease. So when the, when the antibodies bind to the kind of important brain proteins like this receptor, they either kind of bind to it and they kind of hold hands across all the receptors and then basically take them below the surface of the um, cell membrane, which means you get a loss of these receptors. So you just get a loss of those, which, you know, it's obviously you need those receptors. So you get a loss and that leads to quite a lot of problems. Um, so we've learned that that's probably what the NMDA receptor antibodies do. Uh, we've been focusing a lot on, so why does that actually cause seizures? 
Um, and so we've been looking at that. And then most recently, we've been looking at trying to, so the normal treatment for these disorders is to try and get rid of the antibodies in the circulation, all antibodies. You, unfortunately, you can't just specifically weed out those ones. Um, so a lot of the therapies that, uh, that we have, which are effective, the immunotherapies, try to stop production of antibodies or remove them from circulation. Um, but, you know, other groups and, and our group are looking at maybe, because as I said, as these um, uh, receptors kind of are lost below the surface, can you kind of bring some back if they're there and try and rebalance it? So we've been doing some work on that and found that we could do that in the dish. Um, so we need to see if we can do that in real patient frames. <laughs> yeah, so that would, because I think help to, to just to rebalance the system so that you wouldn't get the seizures and it just might help the recovery this encephalitis and all mm. the sh stuff that go with goes with it um yeah. of course the epilepsy is is just one of the uh, uh, diseases incurred by this or, or side effects what what are the what's the other stuff that happens generally um or what are the other possibilities as a result of this probably the main symptoms particularly in adults is actually neuropsychiatric symptoms um, so often patients can present with like psychosis. So that's definitely one. And what's interesting is, um, so schizophrenia, which is a, um, a, a psychiatric disorder, has the same kind of theory underlying as to why it occurs, that it's uh, like a hypofunction or a loss of these NMDA receptors. So they, they might share the same sort of um, underlying cause. Um, for that sense. But obviously, schizophrenia doesn't necessarily lead to the other symptoms and it's a different mechanism. But, you know, the theories are similar. So so that's why you probably get the neuropsychiatric symptoms when you lose your NMDA receptors and um, get the seizures. You get abnormal movements. So movement disorder. Uh, we've described some children who get um, who get a real change in behavior, which isn't a which isn't like a psychosis, but they can kind of stop talking and, and almost become mute um, and and catatonic as well so you can get all sorts of different symptoms um, and and sleep gets majorly disrupted as well particularly in the children um, but I think the great thing is the more that we know about it the more people are recognizing it because the one the one thing about it is that it is potentially treatable which you can't say that about a lot of neurological diseases yeah if you can identify it early and treat it you know that it, yeah it's treatable which is rare would you say there's a sort of average age uh, that a child a child might develop this for nmda receptor antibody encephalitis it's usually kind of so sort of the most commonly affected are young women um yeah but um yeah that's mostly it's mostly young women so sort of teen and early adulthood yeah so much for equality eh yeah, no. Yeah, but yeah. some of the other antibodies, for example, to a protein called LGI1, which does cause hundreds of seizures a day when it first starts, actually affects um, older men in their 60s. So there is a bit of balance. Again, so much for equality, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Gosh, it's so amazing how these diseases affect our, our brains just look like tiny little bits of squishy gunk. But but they're such frag such fragile little almost creatures, aren't they? And all you need is like a bit of a bit of skank or a little chemical imbalance, and it's like pfft. very good description. It's Absolutely right. I mean, you <laughs> need, you know to lose these receptors in a tight, maybe just a small pool of 
you know, brain cells. Yeah, and that's it. it, it and there's a there's a book uh, written by a journalist who actually got an MDA encephalitis called Brain on Fire. And I would recommend that because um, it's a great title. And, it, you know, it really does kind of, like you say, just explain suddenly you can get all these symptoms. I was talking to um, Gavin from um, Aston yeah. University and yeah. when, when he was referring to slices of brain like French toast, I was like, oh, that's nice. But <laughs> when he was also saying, though, that isn't it really quite extraordinary that more of us don't have epilepsy and that mm. the brain isn't more mucked up than it is because it's so fragile? I agree. And, and particularly, you know, particularly children's brains as well, because they're going through such amazing development and, you know, changing all that time. And they're so vulnerable to any insult. But, you know, and we still don't know why one child, so for example, with NMD encephalitis might do really well if they, you know, whether or not they've had seizures or what symptoms, but another child will do really badly. And, and they might have been treated at the same time, but, you know, they'll end up with different outcomes. So we really want to try and improve those. So, yeah, there's so many things we don't know. And, yeah. yeah. Do you think the severity of this um, disease could, is at all impacted by um, a child's mental health and upbringing support that they may, may or not have? Because I know like with a, not that there is such a thing as a regular epilepsy, but we know like, for instance, if, you are, if you've got a supportive family, then, you know, you're going to have better brain development um, and and then going on, you could even be less likely to have seizures, even if you have epilepsy, right? So is, is there anything sort of to do with care that can impact a person's uh, or child's likelihood of developing um, this form of encephalitis and their recovery? Um, that's a really good question. I don't think in terms of um, contracting it, but I definitely mm. think there's an impact on, on recovery. Um, because mm. I think what we're seeing now is that actually you need neuropsychological intervention really, really early on. Um, so studies are coming out because I think, like I said, because it was a treatable neurological disease, everyone's been really hot on, right, as soon as the patient gets ill, we'll treat them with the immunotherapy, yeah. we'll get rid of those antibodies, they'll be fine. And the kind of rating scores that we have to see if they're fine are quite crude. Um, so they'll they'll say, well, their outcome is, you know, it's good, it's good, it's a good outcome. But actually, if you probe that a bit more, it's not such a great outcome. Uh, a lot of these children and even adults, you know, are not doing as well at school. They are struggling. Um, they they haven't got back to where they were, even though they're kind of walking, talking, doing all their activities of daily living. You know, that's kind of started as a good outcome. But actually, there's a lot more underneath. Um, and I think it's that those hidden effects um, of, you know, epilepsy as well and encephalitis associated epilepsy these hidden things everyone thinks you look fine from the outside but actually there's a lot of there's a lot of um, difficulties there and I think if the child is not within a you know um, a school that might not pick it up or you know within the family if it's not picked up then you know that can go unrecognized so I think it's also up to the health professionals to make sure part of that child's pathway clinical pathway is regular neuropsychological assessment and intervention to make sure that we can just get them the best that they can be. Is it common for uh, the children affected to have intellectual disability as well on like before or after diagnosis or what? Uh, I don't think it's any more common in children with intellectual disabilities to get NMD encephalitis um, mm. or associated epilepsy but 
I think their children following will will have difficulties. Yeah, some of them do have difficulties. Yeah, and again, they're they're more subtle. I think um, so. They will look like they're doing okay, but actually, as they get older, that gap between them and their peers starts. Oh, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you know what? I, I know what you mean. It, the subtleness can be the most awful thing sometimes because yeah. like, people find it really hard to believe with me sometimes. Like, cognitively, I have real issues sometimes. Um, yeah. uh, but it's so hard for people to acknowledge that that is the case because you yeah. always end up comparing patients to, you know, comparing them and there's always somebody better or somebody worse. Mm. And it's kind of like you have to look at that child's overall well-being, yeah. right? We're really, really trying to um, find out because... The other thing we don't know really is what, what is the best predictor of outcome? You know, when a child comes in either with an encephalitis associated epilepsy, you know, other antibodies also seem to cause epilepsy. There's MOG antibodies, for example. So uh, one clinical study that we're doing is trying to find some kind of predictive marker of cognitive outcome. Um, and, you know, just from either from brain imaging, from neuropsychological intervention, you know, just assessments, um, just trying to see if we can find something that will give us a clue as to pick out which children we really need to focus on in terms of, you know, improving their cognitive outcome and giving them that neuropsychological support early on. Um, because not all children will need it, but the ones that do, we want to make sure we can identify them and give it to them at the right time. And do you also look into their overall, well, I guess, what's the word to use? Because I can't think of the word, but like their happiness. Um, yeah. their, so because we all know children can experience depression as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we were doing clinic yesterday and it's just kind of, you kind of feel quite sad because there's quite a lot of young people who are suffering with anxiety um, at the moment, you know, as well as dealing with their epilepsy and other issues. Um, and we're lucky we have a really good um, specialist nurse, a neurology specialist nurse who works with us and these families. And I think we're, we try and do... We try to do a few things. Um, we have a youth support worker. So again, it's a it's a nice person who nice person. I'm sure they are very nice. Yes, very nice. But, uh, not very descriptive word, but they are lovely people who do a great job of just engaging young people, and they don't even talk about their disease. And you know, Lydia's Lydia, our nurse, said that when she refers them, she'll say, she won't even say much about them. She'll just say, you know, can you have a chat with them? And they talk about all sorts of other things. But again, it's about building confidence and just getting to know that young person and taking them, you know, away sometimes from the, from the worries that they're having. So we've got that. We try and do, um, through the pandemic as well, we've been doing regular kind of patient family Zoom meetings. Um, oh. so, yeah, so that, that's quite nice. So it's um, myself and the lead of the kind of neuroimmunology service, um, our specialist nurse, and we'll have a topic. Um, so we actually did, we did a really good one. Well, we thought it was good about um, mindfulness, where our uh, psychologist talked. And then a friend of mine who's a yoga teacher um, took them through a guided meditation relaxation. So, um, so that was nice. So, so we've been trying to do things like that. So I think, as Colin was saying about the pandemic, you know, it's brought these opportunities um, that we wouldn't normally have thought of doing. So we've been able to do those kind of things. So I think, yes, we're definitely recognising that, that mental health is, plays a huge part in, in children's and young people's recovery and dealing with. So we're trying to address it in the ways we can. Oh, so could you tell me what 
other positive and um, challenging parts of your roles? Um, the positive ones, I think, as I've said, definitely being able to see the patients and think, oh, OK, that's one of your problems. Let's see if you can sort that out. Yeah. Uh, from the lab and then bring it back at some point. That's the that's the main aim. Um, and I think challenging. I think challenging is. Um, I think particularly I'm in a really amazing lab. You've already met Gav Woodall, uh, who leads the lab. Um, and I think it's still challenging for me to think of myself as a, as a neuroscientist because I'm actually, you know, first and foremost, a paediatrician. Um, so it's actually quite sometimes quite challenging to, you know, um, think of myself as that. So that's why it's really nice to be in a well-supported kind of uh, field, science field. Um, and I think it, I think it works both ways. I think it's quite nice for them to have someone who's met, you know, and treats people with epilepsy as well. So that's quite good. Um, so I think it works quite well in that way. But yeah, sometimes that you know that that is quite that is quite challenging because my background is obviously medicine rather than neuroscience. But um, but I'm learning fast all of these things. So yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, but you've been doing it for like ages. I just yeah. well, I guess um, one of the well in my head anyway I just think that well yourself Gavin you're there to make a positive difference to people affected and if you keep that way of thinking then you're kind of on the same path one would hope yeah and that makes things a lot easier right yes and and you know it's such a nice working environment you you know you've met Gav it's it's very chilled and very supportive and a lot of fun yeah so it's good how many people are in your lab actually Oh, um, well, my my little lab, um, it's just me and my postdoc, um, Manon, cool. brilliant. Um, and yeah, that makes a huge difference having having literally a right hand man who's helping you do all these, you know, experiments and things. So then, you know, you can do other things like do a bit more clinical if you need to, for example, because, you know, you've got someone there. Um, and um, so I have also a PhD student um, who is looking at some of our um, EEG data from our models, uh, which is good. And then we have um, another postdoc who is um, takes charge of the kind of clinical studies that we're trying to do um, in with um, antibody mediated disease and seizures. So yeah, so there's there's about three or four people within my tiny lab, but obviously we're nested within Gav's lab. So yeah. You guys are so modest. Oh my goodness. Um, so, okay, this is like a bit of a deep question as well, but where would you see yourself in the next sort of like two to five years or 10 years and, and your research? Because I think a lot of people, including some of our listeners, especially um, those who aren't necessarily familiar with research, they're like, oh, okay, cool. So research is going to be a cure next year for all these different things. And we know that's not the case. So I think it's really important to manage people's expectations whilst inducing excitement, not too much excitement, but yeah. So <laughs> where do you think we're going to be or you're going to be or, you know, is that any, it's not an easy question to answer, but. No, I think, because I, I can see your t-shirt. Does it say genetics? Genetics. It kind of does. Brilliant. Because I was going to say, um, the great thing about epilepsy recently has been obviously the genetics revolution, hasn't it? Um, getting all the yeah. out proteins. And that's been a huge revolution. Um, so I guess, and personalised medicine, all those things. So I guess I'm trying to do a similar thing with antibody-mediated seizures and epilepsy. So we know that specific antibodies act on specific receptors. So why can't we also use specific treatments, um, you know, to help some of the symptoms? So that's what my aim is to do. And so I would hope 
within 10 years, um, there might be a possibility of, and, and I think other groups work on this too, so it'd be great, is to actually have specific targeted um, therapies that will work alongside immune therapies to kind of get the antibodies, but you'll have specific therapies to, to try and um, just, you know, trying to reverse the effects that the, the antibodies are actually having at that kind of brain cell membrane. Um, so that would be my, my aim to try and get those drugs um, uh, to patients. Because I think that if you can, exactly as the genetic research are trying to do, if you can try and reverse um, the, the consequences of affecting that protein, you might stop seizures, but you might also help improve outcome, um, outcomes in the long term, particularly in like developing brains of children. So that would be my hope is we have at least one of these drugs I'm trying helping patients and I swear you help patients you help their families as well there is that ripple effect and would you say that over time we're going to identify far more people actually affected than we realize right now that there might be right now yeah yeah I think I think you're right I think um so again very similar to genetics we are identifying more antibodies all the time so, you know, when about 10 years ago, there was about three or four neuronal antibodies. Now there's more, over 10, I think. Um, so we're identifying more and more, um, which is great because it means potentially, again, treatable. You can identify them. You know what you're doing. You can treat them early. Um, but yes, you're right. But that does mean you're identifying more cases. Yeah. Yeah, but that's good. If you find, yeah. you find, I, it took at least four years for my epilepsy to be identified or anybody noticed I was being more weird than normal. So it was like, <laughs> and you can imagine like, well, I imagine there'd be less scar tissue if, you know, yeah. if I hadn't like yeah. gone for it so long. So I think that's amazing. And that's, and that's very uplifting and further evidence why people um, and governments and trusts should invest more in research because without funding, we have no research. Yeah. And without research, we don't have hope for the future. And that's what we need. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, oh, also, while we were going to say um, thank you to Epilepsy Research UK for the funding, I think, as well. Um, yeah. For funding yeah. your project. Yeah. Which has been yeah. incredible. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.